Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Our nation's literary history is filled with talented, gifted authors with minds that are blessed with the ability to paint a picture through words. Many of us have experienced these literary works, almost being a part of their stories. But one author who had a profound impact on 20th century fiction isn't your typical writer. He was not someone who sat in front of a fire and wrote novels. No, this person was an adventurer, maybe even to a fault. On today's episode of The Missing Chapter, we welcome a published author and friend, Sean Kroll, to help us explore the extraordinary life of one of the most storied authors, Ernest Hemingway. Welcome back to another week of the Missing Chapter podcast with Phil Horner and Phil Schaff. We're sitting down to a nice afternoon recording. We're brewing our um, Utica Roasting Company, a new flavor that Phil, you brought in today. It's called Art of Darkness. It's described as being not acidic and very bold flavor. And I think about th- midway through our first cup of this coffee, Phil, we agreed it's probably one of our top two, maybe top three coffees. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's and fantastic. It's fantastic, as well as we didn't just have one or two cups. I was I was like three plus because yeah. that was so good. So, as was I. Yeah. As was I. And what's fun, Phil, is that by doing this podcast, we've had the opportunity to work with a number of different people. We've had an opportunity to, to meet certain people that we share our love of podcasts with. We share our love of history with. We share our love of a good story with. Mm-hmm. And we've been able to bring some of those people in and, yep. and have them as guests on our show. And we're fortunate enough today to welcome somebody in for their first episode. Take it away, Phil. All right. Well, it's, it's my pleasure to introduce a uh, 12 novels published author, Sean Kroll. So Sean, you approached me um, a little while ago and said, hey, been listening to your podcast. I think there's something, it's just like kind of streaming through my blood. I got to tell you these stories. These are incredible stories. Have you ever heard of these? And you, you shared a few with me and I'm like, what? I never knew that. That's amazing. We got to have you on the podcast. So, um, Sean, it, it's a pleasure to have you on. We're really excited to have you. And uh, take it away. Tell us what you got for us today. Uh, today, I'm going to be talking about Ernest Miller Hemingway. Uh, if you're anything like me, you've probably been introduced to Ernest Hemingway when you were in high school. When I was in the tenth grade, my English teacher, Mr. Gazzatano, boy, I loved him. He gave us a copy of The Old Man and the Sea, which is. Hemingway's, you know, his ultimate novel. It's the one that he's known for. It's the one that they teach in all the classes. Right. Yeah. Because I was, what, 15, I hated it. But years <laughs> later, I, I, I reread it. And as a grown up, I think I had a stronger appreciation for it. But, uh, yep, I'm, I'm talking about Ernest Hemingway today. The man led an extraordinary life. A lot of people think of him as an author. I think of Ernest Hemingway more as a historical figure who happened mm. to write a few novels. Interesting take. I love yeah. that. Yeah. 
So we're going to go through the man's entire life because when you tell the story of Ernest Hemingway, you have to talk about it from start to finish, from his birth to his death. And he was born right before the turn of the century in 1899, so technically born in the 1800s. His father was a doctor. His mother was a opera singer. He had a very good relationship with his dad. His mom, not so much. She was always pushing him to pursue uh, music, always pushing him to play his cello. But from an early age, he discovered a love of journalism and a love of literature. So when he was finally old enough, he studied journalism in college. But somewhere along the way, he decided that he wanted to be up close to the action of World War I. This is a theme that repeats in Ernest Hemingway's life. He always, whenever militaries are going at it, Ernest Hemingway, he wants to be there. He wants to see it up close, as close as he can possibly get. I'll, t- I'll tell you a little more about how close he gets later on when okay. World War II rolls around. But uh, when he enlists in World War I, he enlists in the Red Cross, and he goes to Italy, and he serves on the Italian front lines where he meets a guy named John Dos Pesos, uh, he would go on to write this trilogy. They call it the USA Trilogy, the 42nd Parallel, 1919, and The Big Money. Uh, hardcore literature fans probably know about him. He's a bit obscure, but this, this, is, this is one of Ernest Hemingway's best friends, and he serves with them in the military until one day while he's tossing out cigarettes to soldiers, a shell hits the ground near him and sends shrapnels everywhere. And this is Ernest Hemingway's first brush with death. The man narrowly escaped death like five times in his life. This would be the first time when a, a shrap- enough shrapnel hits him to lay him up in the hospital. Oh, my gosh. All right. So, first of all, the, the part that I that kind of threw me was the guy's name, Dos Pesos. John Dos Pesos. John $2. I don't know, I don't know if I'm huh? saying that right. <laughs> okay. but. John Dos Pesos. Okay. Right. The money man. notes here. Does that look right? John Dos Pesos. <laughs> sure does. Yeah, that, that's great. He has his, you said his. First brush with death. His first brush with death. The man almost dies, I want to say, five times. Oh, boy. All right. In, in, in many different scenarios. Uh, so he's, he's after his first brush with death, he's full of shrapnel. He's lying there in an Italian hospital, and he meets a nurse that he likes very much. Uh, her name is Agnes von Karowski. She's also working for the Red Cross. Uh, I can't be sure, but I'm... I think I remember hearing that she's like kind of a neutral party. She'll, she'll, she'll help anybody who's in need of medical assistance. And he strikes up a romance with this nurse. This would be the first uh, of his many romances. I think he was married to three or four different women. Wow. Okay. Now he had, he had problems with women and it all started with Agnes because they decided to get married and while he's on the boat going back to America, Agnes meets an Italian officer and decides, I'm going to marry this guy and uh, forget all about Ernest. And if you read his novels, there's a character in every single Ernest Hemingway novel that is is kind of reflective of Agnes. Hmm. In fact, that's something that happens in Ernest Hemingway's writing a lot to the point where his friends get really annoyed. He he takes real world people and their real world problems and just writes them down on paper. And a lot of people got very upset with him over it. Wow, very interesting. Yeah, I guess I've never noticed that. I- yeah, and I'm wondering I'm wondering if that's common with some of our, you know, literary figures. Because I, I think if you look at Hemingway and you're not familiar with him, Maybe that's something you notice, but maybe what we're learning here from Sean today 
is giving more insight into those novels That's and making point. people kind yeah. of reconsider what they've read. Yeah. Yeah. And, and could, like you said, I wonder if some of his friends were like, I think that character is reflective of me. That kind of describes me. I wonder if they recognize that. Oh, it was so on the nose. They really? got mad with him all the time because they were just spitting images of people that he really knew. <laughs> oh gosh, like there amazing. was, there wasn't even. It wasn't even like uh, metaphorical, or it wasn't even subtext or anything. It was just people that he knew, actual wow. words that they said, actual interactions that they had put on paper and that's amazing. how he wrote his novels and i can understand where a little resentment might work its way in there yeah. too right? yeah yeah <laughs> even the bad it. stuff even the bad stuff he put in there about his friends yeah wow so he's back home in chicago he meets another girl hadley richardson and they become engaged like really quickly like within a couple of months and ernest accepts a job as a foreign correspondent for a toronto-based newspaper and together they move to paris and Paris is where Ernest Hemingway meets the real love of his life, the city of Paris. He loved it. It was his favorite place on earth. As soon as he got there, he felt more at home than he had ever felt anywhere. Uh, a lot of his novels take place in Paris. He, he just he loves the city. The real love of his life. I, so do you see that reflected in any of his other works? Oh, yes. Uh, Paris is mentioned just about like all of his novels, right. especially in his first novel, which I'll get to in a little bit here. Most of the story takes place in Paris before they move their way into Spain. And while he's in Paris, he meets none other than Gertrude Stein, who is the godmother of the modernist literary movement. Hmm. Wow. You know, poet, literature expert Gertrude Stein, and she becomes kind of like his mentor. Uh, he meets a few other people along the way. He meets Pablo Picasso and becomes friends with him, oh uh, Ezra Pound, James Joyce, a lot of famous poets. And he falls in with this crowd of people that, you know, they're, 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 they're literary people. They're, they're leading the literary revolution. They're bringing literature into a modern age where people can talk about more than just uh, high class romance and, and things of that nature from the 1800s. You know, I think Paris has always had that mantra as being like a beacon of the arts, whether it's literary yeah. or, you know, on canvas. But during this time period, too, I mean, he seems to be in Paris at the right time. For sure. Yeah. Because, I mean, those names you just ran down, this is like the all-star list of artists. Yeah. And what better place to be and to be inspired by than Paris, France. And the romanticized version absolutely. Of, of Paris that surrounds right. it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a few months later, he would actually leave parent Paris and go to Spain to watch the running of the bulls. And while he's in Spain, he brings his typewriter with him and he cracks out his first novel, The Sun Also Rises. It's published in 1926. And like I said, all of his books are very, very reflective of his life. The Sun Also Rises is about a group of American expatriates who are living in Paris and then eventually decide to go to Spain and watch the running of the bulls. Wow. It's, it's his life on paper. That's what all of his novels were. Now, Sean, I don't want to get too far ahead of where, where you're going here, but how how were his earlier works received? I mean, we obviously know Hemingway today as Ernest Hemingway. Right. Um, you know, Phil, I was just about to get to that. Perfect. I was just about to get to that. Uh, his, his wife is telling him, be selective with publishers, and that's why he leaves her, because he decides to go with the first publisher that gives him an offer. And he marries this woman named Pauline Pfeiffer because she encourages him to go with the first publisher. This book hits the shelves and sells like hotcakes. Everybody oh, wow. loves it immediately. 
hit it, hit the mark right on the first try with the sun also rises. It's a, it's, it's a phenomenon. It sells throughout Europe and America, but Ernest doesn't handle fame very well. Mm. Once he starts becoming more famous, once people know him better, once he starts going out more, he starts showing his first early signs of alcoholism, which mm. would be the demon that chases him for his entire life. Okay. He's always, always drinking. Do you think the success of The Sun Also Rises in, in 1926, did it have something to do with the American Roaring Twenties too? I mean, did that, the fact that he, he published it at that time period, would that... I couldn't say for sure, but I, I, I definitely, I, I can definitely see how those two things would correspond. People are wanting to read uh, uh, stories of travel right, in right. European lands, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So The Sun Also Rises, absolute literary sensation. Uh, a big boost in sales comes after Henry James gives him a plug. Uh, Henry James of The Turn of the Screw, which is one of the first ever ghost stories ever written, haunted house stories, really. And while he's enjoying his success, while he's drinking and drinking and drinking, he becomes so inebriated one night that he has his second brush with death. While he is sitting on a toilet, he goes to flush it. And you know how those European toilets work. They have the chain that you pull. Right. Well, he pulls the chain and it's not the flushing mechanism. It's the cord attached to a skylight on the ceiling. The skylight falls and hits him right in the face. He ends up in the hospital again. They say, man, you are lucky to be alive. Oh my God. Let that, let that be a lesson to you kids. You, you drink too much. And at first it's all giggles and woohoos. And then a skylight hits you on the face. <laughs> I was going to say, there are a lot of lessons to be learned there, listeners. Oh, yeah. Ernest that, Hemingway, he's a cautionary tale. And that would not have been a fitting way, I don't think, for Ernest Hemingway to have gone. So we're, we're glad it's only a brush. And who's the carpenter who put the the same chain of a, of a, of a toilet as, as well as a chandelier or whatever? Yeah, whatever those same, two things yeah. to each other. It's a poor design. design. Totally. Yeah. I wonder if there was a sign. <laughs> it must have been, yeah, completely. So we uh ernest he's with his he's out of the hospital now and he's with his new wife they moved to key west together they have a couple of kids and three years after uh the sun also rises he publishes a farewell to arms mm -hmm. which is a story about a lieutenant serving in the ambulance corps like ernest hemingway did back in world war one now he would not publish another novel for over 10 years after this he would take a 10-year hiatus he wrote some short stories. He did a lot of journalism, but he wouldn't write another novel until the 1940s. And I think that that's because while Ernest is living in Key West, he gets a message from his father telling him money is tight. Things are going really bad here. Uh, I'm not doing so well, Ernest. And Ernest Hemingway wires him enough money to keep him stable, you know, but, and, and, this, this is the crazy part. This has actually been proved by historians. Mere minutes after Ernest Hemingway sends the money, his father decides to take his own life. Oh, my gosh. Minutes. Actual minutes. Uh, if he had waited a day, he would have gotten the money from Ernest. Oh, my goodness. If he had waited, I, I don't know how fast money transfers, but if he had just waited a little bit. Just a little bit longer. Which really doesn't do a whole lot to help Ernest's uh, alcoholism problems. So he he, get, he goes even deeper and deeper into that. And uh, now we see a, a beginning of a pattern in Ernest Hemingway's life where he believes that if he just moves to a different location, it'll solve his problems and that he'll feel better. Uh, this is where he starts being on the move all the time. So first he goes to Africa and he has his third brush with death. 
where he is clawed very deeply in the chest while wrestling with a lion. <laughs> what? It sounds like a lot of fun in theory, right? <laughs> yeah. Until it hurts. I don't know if it does. <laughs> I, it's fun until it's probably fun until it's not. So how do you even get yourself in that situation? It's like uh, that's well, first you find a lion. Yep. And then step one, and then you wrestle with it. You challenge it to a match. Yeah. So he's in the hospital for a little bit, for a little while, and uh, they send him on his way, and they tell him, Ernest, listen, you're going to kill yourself, man. You're you're living too recklessly. Ernest tells them, All right, I understand. I'll slow it down. A couple months later, he's back in the hospital, another little brush with death. When he shoots himself while aiming at a shark, he's shark hunting somewhere on his on his boat. <laughs> so he's back in the hospital after accidentally shooting himself while trying to kill a shark. Now, let me ask you a question, a serious question. Um, do we view this more as Ernest Hemingway is not fearful of death or doesn't think he's meant to die? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Do you think he just has... You know, we heard about the James Dean in one of your shorts, Phil. Yeah. I think he just lived a, a very carefree, very often dangerous, reckless life. Or is it just, um, if I die, I die? Hmm. I think I think the only person that can answer that question is Ernest Hemingway yeah. himself. It almost seems like it's a cry for help, too. You know, he's obviously, he gets into the drinking problem. You know, he's obviously struggling with that. And, and it's almost like he's one of the ways he exerts some of this frustration is through obviously alcohol, um, but maybe just having an adrenaline rush with with lions and sharks. I don't know. It's a it's a and something upon it. He's in the midst still, right, of this hiatus from writing. Yep, he, he wouldn't publish another book until the forties. Wow. So it almost seems like maybe he takes some of that energy, and once he finds literature again in mm. writing, that's his way of expressing it. Yeah. I mean, he's he's doing journalism, but he's he's not mm -hmm. using his imagination very much. Right. Right. Okay. So, after he gets out of the hospital from the shark-related uh, incident, he starts growing tired of his wife. Something that would happen a few more times in his life. She decides to uh, leave him and move to Madrid with John Dos Passos, his old friend, and. He uses his, his journalism knowledge to aid the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War. And I'll give you a little blurb about the Spanish Civil War. It, it, it started when the uh, leftist Republican government came to power. And listen to this. this is, you want to talk about history repeating itself. Uh, a, a leftist government comes into power and the conservative right wing party of Spain decides they don't like this election. So they decide that they're going to try and stage a coup. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? Interesting. Is that history doesn't repeat himself? Yeah. yeah back to never. Uh, so, but the nationalists do actually end up winning, uh, which I, I'm not sure about Spain's long, complicated history, but that seems sad. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and after this, uh, the Civil War, uh, Ernest meets up with an old friend named Martha Gellhorn. He marries her after he's divorced from Pauline. And they, lo they love each other because they're both very, very reckless. She's just as reckless as him at this point. She's also going to the hospital all the time. She's living a fast-paced lifestyle. You know, they, they change they change locations all the time. He's always changing locations because he thinks it's going to help him out somehow. Uh, more liquor. I actually have that. That's written down right in my notes right there. More liquor. <laughs> oh, boy. Much, much more. And then we finally get to the 40s. He's living this fast-paced lifestyle until the 40s. 
when he writes For Whom the Bell Tolls, mm -hmm. one of his much, much, much more famous, more celebrated novels. This one actually gets him the nomination for the Pulitzer Prize that year, but he loses. He loses to John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. His story, For Whom the Bell Tolls, guess what it's about? It's about a man volunteering to fight for the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War. Oddly enough. It's his life on yeah. paper. That's what yeah. every novel was. So it's the 1940s, and uh, World War II is breaking out. And our boy Ernest thinks to himself, I got to do something about this World War II thing. I got to do something about these Nazis. Uh, call it an ego, something like that, but he feels like he needs to get involved. And the most militaries of the world won't let him get involved because he's a celebrity. Mm -hmm. He's a... He's a, he's a It'd be like sending one of the Kardashians over to like to war at, at this point for yeah. Ernest Hemingway. But he, he insists he wants to be there. So what he does is he buys an anti-submarine machine gun and a bunch of hand grenades, hooks it up to his fishing boat and drives around open waters looking for Nazi submarines that he can blow up <laughs> just for funsies. Which is interesting, too, because I think of some of the people who ultimately would go to fight in Europe, whether it be Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, that's a good point. Ted Williams. Yep, Ted Williams. You had some pretty famous people. Yeah. And now, I mean, I never knew, you know, as this plays out, that Ernest Hemingway had anything to do with the actual fighting in World War II. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. Yeah, he wants to be as close as he possibly can. Interesting. Well, he's not. Again, he's reckless. He yep. enjoys danger. And I think he gets caught up in what pretty much everyone felt during that time period was a sense of patriotism, yeah. nationalism, you know, and, and wanting to get involved against, you know, such evil. I think it was more for Paris because you know what happened mm -hmm. in Paris during World that's War That's a great, that's a great, great point. point. Yeah, yeah. That's probably what tipped him over the edge. Is that, okay, you took Paris. Now it's on. Yeah. Now yeah. Ernest Hemingway's got to come and get you. Yeah. So after he gets tired of that, he goes on a, a major bender and he winds up in a hospital in London with a severe concussion. I don't know if you want to call this a brush with death, but uh, severe concussion. And while he, because he's there, because he blacked out for so long, he doesn't send the proper passports back to his wife so that she can come and join him in Europe. So she ends up having to go over to Europe on a ship carrying munitions for the allied forces which you might as well paint a big old bullseye on that for the Axis powers. And this ship actually is attacked several times, but it does eventually make it to London. But by the time Martha gets to London and off of this ship, she doesn't want anything to do with Ernest anymore. Oh my I, can, I can understand why. I know if I put my girlfriend on a munitions boat and sent her overseas, she'd probably be, might be sleeping on the couch. But. <laughs> yeah, I would say. So she abandons Ernest, and uh, now Ernest doesn't have a wife or kids or any. Well, he's got kids, but he, he doesn't care. Uh, so he decides that he wants to live close to the war. He wants to get right up there with all the action once more now that he's out of the hospital again. So he drives his it's, – it's June 6th, 1944. The men of history you are, I'm sure you know what happened. Yep. Yep. The turning point there in, you go. In, the, in the West. Absolutely. I was going to say Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas was born. Oh, but, uh, <laughs> oh that too. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Isn't that, yeah, same day. 
Uh, nope, it's D-Day, and uh, Ernest, he wants to get cl as close as he can, so he drives his fishing boat to Omaha Beach, and he's present for the landing of the seventh wave on Omaha Beach. That is insane. Now, we've all seen Saving Private Ryan, so we know what it was like on that beach. I can't think of a soul who would want to be there. Right. I know. Ernest wanted to be there. And to be a witness to that, I never think that all the times we've studied that, to think that Ernest Hemingway was was there. I, that's there. Uh, yeah, that's right. And like you said, Sean chose to be there. Yeah. He, he elected. He wanted to be there and yeah. survived. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. He did. In fact, he Ernest Hemingway went on to claim that he was the first man to walk through liberated Paris. Interesting. After this happened. He, he says that now while he's walking through liberated Paris, he meets up with a group of resistance fighters and appoints himself as their commander. And so he leads this group of resistance fighters throughout France. This is a big no-no as it violates the Geneva Convention. So once he walks into France with all these people, they bring him in. They say, listen, man, you broke the laws of the world. So we got to put you in court. I don't think he went in with a lawyer or anything. He simply stated, judges, I was not, I did not appoint themselves a commander. I did not appoint myself a commander of this militia. I simply gave them advice, which they chose to follow. <laughs> and he gets away with it. They let him go. Yeah, it's great. Like they, they bring him forward and they're like, Ernest, you violated the Geneva Convention. He says, no, I didn't. And they're like, ah, okay. <laughs> and that was it. Yep. So Gertrude and Ernest, they meet up. You remember Gertrude Stein, they see each other and they had a fight years ago, but now they're, they're deciding to, uh, you know, bury the hatchet. They want to be friends again. Ernest marries again. He marries a woman named Mary Welsh, who was a, a war correspondent just like him. But while he is returning to America with his new wife, he learns that F. Scott Fitzgerald, one of his good friends, has died. James Joyce, one of his good friends, has died. And Gertrude Stein has died while he was traveling to America, mm -hmm. right after they saw each other for that last time. Pauline, his ex-wife, has also died. Now, this, some of this is speculative, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest what I'm about to tell you. She died very, very shortly after their last argument. The cause of death was determined to be a stress-related tumor on her neck. And a lot of experts are certain that her falling out with Ernest activated the tumor and, and inevitably led to her death. Oh, my goodness. So the, the man probably is not giving himself much of a choice on thinking about it being his fault. Right. He, I'm sure he believes that it is his fault and it may very well be. Yeah. And you think about past instances where he was, you know, tied to the death of his father and, you know, it's, it's certainly been a reoccurring theme almost. Death chases him. Death yeah. chases him around. It, it's, it's always trying to grab him. It grabs the people that are around him. And all, all this, this relationship with death is actually, it serves as a metaphor for the book that he would publish next in 1952, The Old Man and the Sea. It's, it's a metaphor for death. The whole thing is really a metaphor for death. And it's the most metaphorical that Ernest Hemingway will get in any of his work. And maybe this is a good idea because this is the novel that would win him the Pulitzer Prize. He lost before to John Steinbeck, but this time he wins. Now, he goes to Africa to celebrate. He's on his way to Africa. And while he's flying there, 
the plane that he's flying in experiences some engine failure and crash lands. Uh, Ernest and his wife, they both survive. You know, they're, they're brought somewhere and they're treated for their injuries and yada, yada, yada. So then they put them on another plane and they're going to fly them to London now. And then that plane crashes. <laughs> and the newspapers, they, they roll out the next day with the news that uh, Ernest Hemingway, the beloved writer, has died. He has died in a plane crash. Uh, the, the, the city of Paris mourns for him. They're all so sad to see this person that they love so much finally, finally, uh, death finally catch up with him. So imagine their surprise when he comes strolling into town the next day. See, that that's the crazy part. So you mentioned earlier. They um, think he's dead. Yeah, so they obviously think he's dead. And you mentioned earlier there's there's like at least five brushes with death. Yep. Now, I the fact that, that he had, five there? I don't know. Well, see, that's the thing. Are, are we talking, do you want to include this as like one brush of death? Because how do you say in your I, lifetime that you, you not only survived? Two. Yeah, you survived one plane crash, but a second one? In the space of 24 hours, the plane that was supposed to rescue them also crashed. And there are newspapers that exist, I think, still, like old artifacts that, that, that tell about the death of Ernest Hemingway, that he died in a plane crash. And have you ever heard of the Mandela effect? I was mm -hmm. just going to say that. You yeah, took the words right of, out of my when, mouth. When they, years later, when they hear about his death, a lot of people could swear that he died in yeah. the 50s. Wow. And it's partly because... Newspapers really truly believe that he was, yeah. <laughs> he did perish. They told everybody that he was dead. That's incredible. They, they didn't wait for a body or anything. Yeah, at that point, apparently, he didn't need proof. I, I just needed a story. I guess not. Uh, and when he gets back to civilization, Ernest is told that he will be receiving the Nobel Prize for Literature. They're going to give him uh, an award recognizing his achievements and his contributions to literatures over the years. He doesn't take it so well because at this point he's dangerously paranoid. Mm. He believes that he's being followed around everywhere. He thinks that the press are federal agents. He thinks that there's spies following him around while he's having his morning cup of coffee, while he's going for a walk in the park. There's always somebody around who wants to gather information on Ernest. Now, how does the old saying go? Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're wrong. Mm. He wasn't wrong. And it is now factual knowledge that a CIA file was opened on Ernest Hemingway. Really? Yes. And, and what time period are we in right now? We're in about the 50s. Okay. They opened this file because of all his involvements and in all these wars. The fact that he had some ties with the KGB. But... You know, how, how rarely does that happen when the crazy paranoid guy is actually right? They were following him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kind of reminds me of the uh, Mel Gibson movie, Conspiracy Theory, right. doesn't it? Yeah. And, and when you consider the 50s and the historical context of what was going on, it makes it a little bit more kind of, feasible. Yeah, I mean, true. it's, you know, certainly the government had its hand in a number of different uh, areas of, of culture. Right. And looking into people that you wouldn't necessarily, you know, assume. Yeah, and I think any other time period, like you said, you probably would like that's a little bit of a stretch. Right. The fact that it's the fifties, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, now, now because he's so distrustful of just about anything and everybody, he stops paying his taxes. He's not going to give the government any money. Yeah, he he's he's even deeper into his alcoholism. He's just going absolutely bonkers, just locking himself into rooms 
typing up full manuscripts and then throwing them away. So his wife decides, all right, Ernest needs help. So she has him committed to a, a psychiatric facility. Now this is 1950 and psychiatric facilities weren't what they are today. The best thing that they can possibly think of to do with Ernest is to send electricity spiraling through his brain. They give him several rounds of electroconvulsive therapy, which you could argue that it quote unquote worked because he was a lot more calm after this. I think he was a lot more calm because his brain got shot up with a lot of electricity. But that was how that was how they used to uh, that was how they used to solve problems with uh, like the mentally ill back there back then. Yeah, at the expense of his own his own being, you know, right. his own soul. Yeah. It doesn't work for very long. He's released, and as soon as he has his next psychotic break, they send him back. He gets even more electroconvulsive therapy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They, they don't treat Ernest very well. And, I mean, this man is a celebrity. It mm. makes you wonder, like, why are they treating him like this? Is this really the only option that they have for him? He's, yeah. He's, he's a big name. He's Ernest Hemingway. Even even now, while he's still alive, they're teaching his books in, in English classes, and they're talking about him in the news and whatnot. Now it's it's the worst possible thing that they could do for him because after they let him out this time, he waits until his wife leaves. He waits until he's all alone in his house. He goes and he grabs his favorite shotgun and he uses it to end his whole life. Several uh, months later, his Nobel Prize acceptance speech that he had written before his death is read in front of a crowd by a man that Ernest Hemingway had never even met. W. Edwards Deming once wrote, the world is drowning in information, but slow in acquisition of knowledge. Help spread information by following us on Instagram and liking us on Facebook today. Thank you for listening to the Missing Chapter podcast with us, Phil Schaff and Phil Horander. Sean, first off, fantastic story and, and a great recounting of, of somebody that, that just played such an integral part in American history, in world history, really. And you started this episode off by saying something that kind of stuck with me throughout your story. He, Hemingway was a historical figure who happened to publish a few novels. And after hearing you, know, you, you tell the background to him, you nailed it. I mean, this really, that's a very uh, great way of, of putting this. And I think one of my perceptions of his that, that you disproved was I picture him sitting somewhere just writing. And that was his life. His life was about writing and he would finish a book and start a new one. And then the other thing that kind of struck me throughout all of this is something I think I mentioned when we listened to Tim Field, yeah. Phil, talk about the late great jazz musician, uh, Buddy Bolden, mm -hmm. this tragic element that seems to transcend generations of artists, whether they're musicians or writers, whether it's Jim Morrison or Kurt Cobain, or even how you look at like a Stephen King today. Right. There's something about those figures that can produce amazing masterpieces in their fields but in a regular setting you look at as being, I guess, for lack of a better term, quote unquote, different. Yeah. 
maybe a little eccentric, maybe eccentric. a little, yeah, a little, I don't, that's a great point, Phil. I, every single one of them has their own unique elements. Their personalities were tailored to do exactly what they produced. Right. So Sean, I, I got a question for you too. And I don't know if you want to follow up with, with what Phil said before I, before I ask. Um, but that portion of time when he went through that about 10 year period of, of not writing, is he experiencing writer's block? So is that why he's just kind of like, hey, I want to experience the world? Or is this his way of, of taking a break from writing and saying, I, I just got to get this, this out of me. I'm going through a bunch of personal um, angst, maybe is a, a term you could say. And then I just want to experience life and go through this adrenaline rush. Of and, life. you know, Phil, when we talked about that in the break, my take was kind of similar to yours, but a little bit different. Was it just that he didn't know what to write about? Because, Sean, you mentioned that he he wrote so much based on his own life that maybe he would live five, ten years and get new ideas and go ahead and start writing. Yeah. What, what's your take on that, John? What do you think? Well, he, he published short stories. There are a lot of short stories and a lot of novels actually came out after his death with his name on it. There are some theories that he didn't really write these novels, mm. but maybe that's what he was doing during that 10 year break. Maybe he was writing novels and packing them away because a lot of people used to do that. It's, it's not like today where anytime anybody writes something, it has to hit the shelves. Uh, Harper Lee, you know, Harper Lee, she wrote to kill a mockingbird mm -hmm. and she swore, she swore that she would never, ever publish another book. And then after her death, we get this book called Ghost Set a Watchman mm. with the name Harper Lee on it. And that's you could probably do an episode on that story alone. But I think maybe that's what he was doing. I think he was he was thinking to himself, maybe I don't want to send these novels in for publication and packing them away, which it's it's the ultimate betrayal of an artist to put their work out there when they just would rather it stay in a trunk somewhere. Interesting. Yeah. When they don't truly believe in it just yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's a great, that's a great take on that question. Yeah. And as to what Phil Horander here said, you, you mentioned that a lot of the time these uh, famous people and these artists, they're eccentric. Mm -hmm. It's so funny. Me and my girlfriend and I, we were taking like one of those online personality quizzes the other day. Cause we ran out of stuff to do on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> and one of the question was, does your family think of you as the eccentric one? And I never thought about it too deeply, but after I gave it a little thought, they probably do, which <laughs> frightens me a little bit because you're describing Kurt Cobain, Jim Morrison, and Ernest Hemingway as these eccentric people. And I guess I'm one of these eccentric people. And like, look at me, I'm, 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 I'm writing my novels and I, I hope to be as famous as these people someday. So it scares me sometimes. Like, is this the life that I, I might live someday? I certainly hope not. And I think that the element that we're missing with that that eccentricity there is fame. Because if you go through the Buddy Boldens, the you know, the Jim Morrisons, all these all these different people, once fame, that ingredient is added to the mix, it seems like for some people it brings out the best qualities. It, it brings out, you know, comedians' humor, brings out these actors and actresses um, you know, best qualities, whereas some it might bring out the worst qualities, you know? And I think it's a it's an interesting metaphor because you you see Hemingway with alcohol and Hemingway with alcohol, it brought out the worst qualities in him and maybe the fame brought out the worst qualities in him too. So it's it's interesting. We 
we were saying in the in the break that maybe it's the fame where you ultimately want to get there. Like that's your ultimate, you know, heaven is to get to that fame to the point where everyone knows your name. But is that what causes the the downfall? You love that feeling of being famous, but does that feeling love you back? Exactly. Is that's what truly fulfills? And as most celebrities find out, that's why a lot of celebrities are so disappointed when they get to the top. It's not exactly the mecca that they had hoped for. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as historians, obviously, this adds an element to your appreciation and understanding of all of these individuals. Mm. And you can go back and you can speculate. You know, certainly from what you told us, he wasn't someone um, he liked where the action was but maybe didn't like being the center of the action. Mm. And if you get there, um, it's a matter of maintaining it. And it's a matter of, like you guys said, being able to digest it and make sure that it doesn't destroy who you are. Right. Sean, I just got to say thank you for, for doing this because there's someone who's listening right now that can resonate with an Ernest Hemingway. There's someone that could resonate with your story and you say, yeah, I'm a little different, but guess what? Like I have... I have the ability to take something that might be, be deemed different to society and really, you know, bloom something incredible out of this. You know, and, and like you said, Phil, I, I pictured Ernest Hemingway the same way. Right. Just like, you know, having your sweater and writing down some stories, but it's it's how different he was that produced some of the most famous and incredible works that have influenced cultures throughout the world. And the great thing about your episode is that Hemingway for me. And I'm wondering if listeners feel this way too. Hemingway is his books. That's what I remember, his books. But it's really his his life, his participation in all these great events. But it's the way he lived his life. Hemingway, the man, mm. should be the element in history that we remember. That's a great point. And that his books also contributed to that, obviously. But his life contributed a lot more than I think people remember or give it due credit for. He, he was 62, 61, 62 years 62. old, 62 years old when he passed. So, I mean, and from our 2021 standpoint, that that's pretty young. Right. Pretty, pretty so young. to do that much and accomplish that much in that short amount of time is, is quite incredible. Uh, so, Sean, I, on behalf of the missing chapter, Phil Horner, Phil Schaff here, we, we thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This has been this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Sean Kroll. And another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.